Hi, this is Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. Let's get into the book of Romans once again. Let's open up St. Paul's letter in chapter 10. If you want to grab your Bible, we'll start with the first 13 verses. This is pretty epic, and some pretty famous biblical material is in here. Let's read verses 1 to 13. St. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law that everyone who has faith may be justified. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For man believes with his heart, and so is justified, and he confesses with his lips, and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, let's let's stop there at the end of verse 13. And I'll tell you, verse 9 is one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. So misunderstood especially in uh, non-Catholic Christian circles. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And perhaps you've had that that verse kind of presented to you. And how do you explain this uh, from a Catholic perspective? We'll we'll, we'll get into this. But first, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. In that reading that we just experienced, uh, St. Paul writes, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And that's verse 1 of chapter 10. Now, who, who is the them that he's talking about? Who, who is he praying for that they might be saved? His fellow Jews. And of course, multitudes of his fellow Jews have accepted Jesus as Messiah at this point, but not all. In fact, the vast majority have not. And, and Paul is again revealing his heart for them and why he does what he does, why he goes to a synagogue first in every town he gets to as he's trying to complete his apostolic mission. First to the Jew and then to the Greek. That's the order of salvation because that's the way God chose to reveal the gospel to the world. He picked Israel as his chosen people, began to reveal himself gradually in salvation history through them to the world, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ, the Jew from Nazareth, who is also the eternal God, and then opening up the true faith to the entire world, making it Catholic, making it universal, as was promised to Abraham in the beginning. Now, it's interesting, too, in verse 2, St. Paul says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. Now, we we talked about this a little bit last time, and St. Paul knows exactly what he's talking about there because he was one of those guys, super zealous for God. 
and again, he, he, he most of the Israelites that he's speaking, the vast majority, they, they they care deeply about their faith. They're not sort of what we call in the 21st century the meh generation, the whatever generation. And, and sadly, a lot of Catholics, uh, baptized Catholics, fall into this boat where they just don't care about religious questions, just not passionate about their faith either way. Can't be said of Paul's compatriots. They're incredibly zealous. And in fact, St. Paul himself, before he became Paul, was, of course, Saul the Pharisee. And he was one of those guys who was extremely zealous, but his zeal was not based on knowledge. His zeal in fighting against Jesus and fighting against the early church movement, which was, of course, a Jewish movement in the beginning, 100% Jewish, became open to the Gentiles as well, of course. But St. Paul was rounding up believers in Jesus in synagogues and having them maybe killing them personally himself, as some have suggested, some historians, certainly was listed on the record in the Bible in the Acts of the Apostles as an accomplice to the murder, to the martyrdom of the first uh, person to give his life for Jesus Christ, and that is Stephen, the uh, the deacon. And we, we see this narrated in Acts. But this idea of zeal, zeal is a, is a good thing as long as it's rightly directed. Uh, think, think about all the great examples in the Old Testament. We think about Phineas, if you want to hear kind of a grisly story. Phineas was so zealous for God and his laws, he killed one of his fellow Israelites and his pagan lover, the, the lover of this uh, fellow Israelite. Why? Because they were, they were completely living opposed to the laws of Yahweh. And you can read about this in Numbers chapter 25. We think about all the other great examples of faith in the old in the old covenant time, Elijah the prophet. Remember his showdown with the prophets of Baal, um, Mattathias. We, we we've spoken on the Faith Explained program about the books of the Maccabees. This time, right before, pretty much right before the time of Christ, when the people of God were under fierce persecution by the Greeks, Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and they they really knew how to defend their faith with zeal. Uh, don't forget Mattathias, the father of Judas Maccabeus. Everything that happened in that case. And in 1 Maccabees chapter 2, uh, it says, When Mattathias saw it, and, and this is, this is a, he saw a, a desecration happening, he burned with zeal, his heart was stirred, he gave vent to his righteous anger, he ran and killed him. He killed one of his uh, fellow Jews who had kind of given in these pagan ways, killed him upon the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar thus he burned with zeal for the law as Phineas did against Zimri the son of Salu as the guy I just mentioned Phineas then Mattathias cried out in the city with a loud voice saying let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me and then they sort of left town and went into the hills and started this kind of guerrilla warfare movement this asymmetric warfare movement against these pagans and <laughs> I mean, he kind of went. He kind of went Sylvester Stallone in, in First Blood, the original Rambo movie, which was the best one, by the way. Uh, so that that's the kind of zeal that 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 was so admired amongst the people of God. And in Paul's own time, don't forget, there was this group known as the Zealots. In fact, Jesus picked one of these guys, Simon the Zealot, to be one of his apostles. And these guys, they 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 also somewhat like the Maccabean revolt. They wanted to start an armed rebellion this time against the Romans, the occupying Romans. And Jesus kind of tamped that guy down, but he used his passion, he used his zeal. He said, "We're not going to do it this way. We're not going to do it by violence, by force, but by explicating the truth. That our weapons are nothing more than peace, love, and the word of God." 
So all of this zeal is, is kind of a, it's just a great word to mention the zeal. And Paul's now got a different kind of zeal at this point, the zeal of his passionate faith for Jesus Christ. And so he, he wants, uh, he doesn't want his fellow Jews to be in the same boat that he was in, where, where he has this incredible zeal for God, but he just does not know the facts about Christ, does not know the facts about the Catholic Church. And he, God set him straight. Uh, very special appearance on the road to Damascus, that incredible conversion of Paul. You know it very well. He talks about it various places. Acts chapter 9 is one place you can read about it. And so he's really passionate that everybody, Jew and Gentile, get this straight. Okay, so let's uh, look here at the next verse, which is verse 3 in chapter 10, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that a lot of his fellow Jews thought that they could kind of earn their way into heaven by simply keeping the law, not understanding that it's impossible. Nobody can keep the whole law. And uh, a lot of Catholics, as we've talked about in the past, unfortunately still think this way today, that they can somehow earn their way into heaven through good deeds. Now, our good deeds are really, really important for many reasons, but Nobody can earn or merit that initial justification, that initial forgiveness that Christ offers us. Whenever we, you know, post-baptism fall into serious sin, mortal sin, nobody can get us out of that except for Jesus himself. Uh, we cannot dig our way out of that hole. So that's really, really important that um, we understand this. And then in verse 4, he kind of elaborates on this a little bit more. He says, for Christ is the end of the law that everyone who has faith may be justified. And, and people argue, scholars, theologians argue about what this means for Christ is the end of the law. In Greek, it is the word telos, telos. And that's interpreted in many ways. It could be the end, like it's over, the law is over, the Old Testament law is over, don't need it anymore. Or it could be interpreted as, and this is the way that I, I would take it, as the goal. It's the Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. The law is pointing to Christ, but he doesn't, he doesn't abrogate the old covenant law. He doesn't get rid of it, but he fulfills it. And this is really important for us to know. Jesus, over and over again in the gospel, shows that he has not come to abolish the law. He says this himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fulfill it. And so uh, this idea that we're going to chuck the old covenant uh, is not a good idea we, got, we actually have to still read and know and learn the Old Covenant Scriptures as Catholics if we're going to fully appreciate our faith. A lot of people don't want to do that. A lot of people just want to nah, stick with the New Covenant. Let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to the good parts. Fast forward uh, to what we really want to see and read. But it's crucial that we not neglect uh, the Old Covenant. As one scholar said, he uh, I was reading a commentary on this, and he said, well, you know, in my local parish, I tried to suggest doing a, a Bible study on the, the book of the Old Covenant uh, prophet Micah. And, and the way that people looked at me, it was as if I suggested that we do a study on the law codes of Hammurabi. You know, I mean, this is just like, how is this relevant to us? Well, it, it's totally relevant because it's the Word of God and it's always fresh to us. The Old Covenant scriptures are really important. That's why I read them at every Mass as well. Uh, Christ fulfills those Old Covenant scriptures for sure. But we need to understand them. And sometimes not knowing the, the Old Testament causes us to miss important truths of the new and just seeing it in the proper light. 
as Scott Hahn likes to say, you've got to know basic calculus before you can understand trigonometry and move on to advanced stuff. And that Old Testament is like basic calculus in a certain sense. And yeah, Christ does abolish the ceremonial works of the law, that is circumcision, the dietary laws, all that stuff. But the moral law still remains. The Ten Commandments still remains. In fact, here's an interesting piece of information for you. Nine out of the Ten Commandments are actually repeated in the New Testament. The only one that's not specifically is, is, uh, is the, the commandment to worship on the day of the Lord, on the Sabbath. But it's kind of, you don't really need to say that out loud because everybody kind of knows that. And then, of course, the church proclaims that, yes, we, we have to worship. It's a mortal sin if you don't, if you don't go to Mass on Sundays and holy days of obligation. Whew, another topic for another day. But uh, let's see what Paul says next here. And you're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. All right, let's look at verse 5 of Romans 10. Paul says this, Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. Okay, uh, let me stop there for just one second. He's not suggesting here that, that you can achieve full righteousness by, by living the law. Uh, in, I mean, theoretically you could, but nobody's ever actually done it. What, what is he talking about there? What is he really referring to at this point? He's referring to the fact, and, and let's actually look at chapter, for verse 6 rather, to, uh, to get this fleshed out a little bit. This is what he's really saying in verse 6. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Okay, so those are verses 6 and 7. That kind of sheds some light here. What's he quoting there? He's actually quoting the Old Covenant. Again, Paul knows the Old Covenant really well, and he's using it to make his points. In verse 6, when he says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? What's he quoting there? This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. That, That particular verse says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say in your heart, That is, don't say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Okay, so this is really, really important background. One of the things that, 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 that Moses wants to say in Deuteronomy to the Israelites, like the law is given to you and it's a good thing because th- these are the ways of God. This is how God wants you to live. In in contrast to the ways of the pagans that are all around you. You've got to be an example of light to these nations. But they're not living in a way that pleases Almighty God. And God's going to drive out these nations before you. And so, it, now, if you were able to keep the law all by yourself, bully for you. You would be able to achieve righteousness all by yourself. But that's not possible because of our sin. And so this is why we need Christ. This is why we need forgiveness. And Israel needs to learn this. So when when, when God is driving out the, these pagan nations and defeating them, and they're taking possession of the promised land, it would have been really easy for them to say to themselves, oh, it's because I deserved it. <laughs> God's rewarding me for, for living right. Uh, and, and he's given me all this. No, no, no. And Israel needs to understand that it's impossible to please God without grace, without forgiveness, without faith. And this is one of the things that, that Paul will say uh, really, really well here. 
Okay, so let's uh, let's look at the next uh, couple of verses here. Uh, this is this is something people don't really understand. When Paul writes here, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. What on earth is that all about? Well, again, he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. And then in verse 7, he, he says here, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This He's kind of alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here from Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you look at verses 10 through 14, if you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in the book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we might obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Neither is the law beyond the great sea that one may say, would that we had one like the prophet Jonah, who would descend into the depths of the great sea and bring it up for us. And then we can also look at Psalm 107, 26. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. Back to Deuteronomy here. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. That's why St. Paul writes in verse 8, the word is near you. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. So in ancient Israel, the people had no excuse because the, the teaching of the Lord was right there with them. They don't have to say, oh, I got to go up to heaven and get it. That's impossible. So I don't, I don't need to know about this. No, God's given it to the people through Moses. You got it. You need to learn it. You don't have to cross the seas to try to get it. And uh, I quoted to you the Aramaic translation of this uh, in the synagogues. Neither is the law beyond the great sea that one may say, would that we had one like the prophet Jonah, who would descend into the depths of the great sea and bring it up for us. Well, that's interesting. So you don't have to say who will ascend into heaven to get the law, who's going to descend into the deep to get it. Here's the interesting thing. Christ descended from heaven to earth with everything that you need. The law, how to live it. He's the example. He gives us the power through his grace and sacraments. So you, you, you've got it. You've got the equipment that you need. Oh, and he descended into the deep. And as we, we've seen, when he was baptized, it was kind of the beginning of his death because the sea was an image of death in the ancient world. That's why Jonah wanted to be thrown into the deep. He wanted to essentially die. God had other plans. Christ was raised from the from the deep, from the depths of the earth, from, from the sea of death, if you will, and he was brought up. And just as Jonah was brought back onto dry land by the sea monster, Christ was resurrected back onto planet earth. And this is exactly what Jesus promised. He said, the sign that will be given is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that's why the word is near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, the word of faith we are proclaiming, as St. Paul said. Jesus is here with you. And in the sacraments, he's actually living within us in a state of grace. So yes, you do have what you need. You can't do this yourself. You can't obey the laws of God yourself. But Christ living within you, yeah, he can do it in and through you. Absolutely, 100%. So th this is just beautiful, beautiful stuff from St. Paul in Romans chapter 10. So we've run out of time for now, but we'll pick this up again in the next edition of our Roman series. 
we're going to open up right now the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Okay, as we open up our Q&A mailbag here on the Faith Explained, I want to remind you once again, you can email me. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. And you can also try to find me on the X.com app, formerly known as Twitter, of course. My handle there is at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. I got an email from Father Joe, who's a pastor of two different parishes in New Jersey, faithful listener to the Kale Clark Show and the Faith Explain. Wrote me a really nice email. Thank you, Father Joe. Asked me a lot of different questions. I'm going to try to deal with one of them. He was asking me to explain the Todah sacrifice of the Old Covenant. Yeah, a bunch of other questions about sacrifice in the temple and things like that, which we'll get to uh, in the future. But a lot of you might be scratching your heads right now. What on earth is the Todah sacrifice? Um, and why do I need to care about this? Good question. Good question. It has a lot to do with Jesus and the Eucharist. Uh, Dr. Tim Gray from the Augustine Institute, great scholar, great guy. I know Tim, and he, he's written a, a lot on this. He wrote a chapter in the book Catholic for a Reason Number 3 on this whole uh, topic of the story of the Todah. What does it mean? Toda, you know, here's the faith. Well, um, T-O-D-A-H is how you spell this in English. And it, it, most people have heard about, of course, the uh, the burnt offerings in the temple and the slaughter of the lambs, if you will, the silence of the lambs, <laughs> the Passover time. Most people don't know about the Todah sacrifice. And Tim Gray explains that this was actually a pretty important thing uh, in the Hebrew mindset. In fact, a significant sacrifice. There was an old rabbinic teaching. The rabbis used to say this, in the coming age of the Messiah, all of the sacrifices will cease except for the Todah offering, the Todah sacrifice. It will never stop. So, okay, this seems like a pretty big deal. What is this? What is it? What what is the what is it about this that make the one old covenant sacrifice that will stand the test of time, stand the test even in the messianic age, not going to stop? Well, the word toda it has to do with a thank offering, thanksgiving, if you will. Now, someone would make one of these sacrifices, a toda sacrifice, when they'd been delivered from a very very dangerous situation, such as they've recovered from a deadly disease. Um, they're in great danger. There's a war. Everyone's going to be killed. And somehow the, the danger goes away. God, God defeats his enemies, uh, whatever the case may, might be. So the person who's, who's gotten this, this great grace from God, who's been healed or delivered from danger, what this person would do uh, to show thanksgiving, they'd gather all their close friends and family, and they would have this meal called the Todah Sacrificial Meal. They would sacrifice a lamb in the temple, and there would also be, get this, there would be bread that would be consecrated in the temple as well, the very moment that the lamb was sacrificed. How about that? So the lamb meat, the bread, and wine, those would be the elements of the sacred Todah meal. And then they would pray songs of thanksgiving. Psalm 116, very, very important. That would be, that would be prayed as well. That's one of the Psalms Jesus sang, by the way, in the Mount of Olives before his passion. Anyways, so Todah means thanksgiving in Hebrew. It also has connotations of praise as well. As uh, Tim Gray explains, Leah in the Old Covenant 
When she gave her birth to her fourth son, she named him Yehuda or Judah. That, that's actually the same thing as Toda. It's the, it's the, the named form of Toda. And it's, she's basically saying, I'm giving thanks to God. And I'm gonna, that's going to be his name, give thanks. So it's all over the Old Testament. Jodah uh, offers up a Toda sacrifice, or at least promises to. If I'm somehow saved, you know, when he's in the belly of the beast, you know, in the ocean, if I can somehow get out, I'm going to make a Toda sacrifice in the temple. King Hezekiah offers a Toda hymn of praise when he recovers from this danger that he faced, a life-threatening illness. King David uh, gives a Toda festival after defeating the Canaanites and brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And what does he do? He offers bread and wine and the meat of the sacrifices. How about that? Hymns of Thanksgiving. So th this is a liturgical thing as well. It's, it, it, and all of this is kind of in the background, clearly, to Jesus Christ, the Last Supper. Because not only was it a Passover meal, it was a Todah meal. The Hebrew word Todah is translated in Greek as, guess what? Eucharistia. Eucharistia. Eucharist. And Eucharist, as you know, means Thanksgiving. How about that? And that's what Jesus did at the Last Supper, the first Mass. He took bread, wine, and he did what? He gave thanks over them. Thanksgiving. That's Luke twenty-two nineteen. So the Todah is clearly in the background as well. Some scholars think it was nothing but a Todah meal. No, it was a Passover meal as well, but it has the elements also of the Todah, the Thanksgiving sacrifice. It really does kind of um, aid in our understanding here. The Passover meal has, has really is kind of a Thanksgiving meal too, right? Because the, the Jews were giving thanks for their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Passover meal has all the same stuff that a Todah sacrifice meal has. Bread, wine, a lamb, hymns, prayers. They would pray the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, just for the Hallel of it. Uh, that's where we get the word hallelujah from, by the way, the Hallel Psalms. These are Todah Psalms. How about that? And of course, it makes sense in the context of a Eucharistic sacrifice of Thanksgiving because, again, people would offer this Todah Thanksgiving sacrifice when they're being delivered from danger. Well, there's no greater danger than being lost for all eternity because of sin, the flesh, the devil, and Jesus rescues us from these things with his passion, his death, his powerful resurrection. So this is key, absolutely key to understanding this. So Father Joe, thank you very much for asking me that question about the Todah sacrifice. A lot of people don't know about this, but it teaches us that when we go to Mass, this is Thanksgiving. We're giving thanks for what Jesus has done for us, and we're also experiencing it ourselves because we get to receive Jesus, the gift of himself, in the Eucharist. Wow, absolutely. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, we will remember the name of the Lord our God and everything that he's done for us. If you want to send me a question for the mailbag segment, you can write in to me, faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Or you can find me on Twitter. It's now called X at Kale Clark. All right, I will see you later today on the Kale Clark Show live on Relevant Radio and 23 and a half hours from now on the next edition of The Faith Explained. Check the podcast, share it with a friend. God bless you.